Chapter Thirty Four of the Financier by Theodore Dreiser. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The contrasting pictures presented by Cowperwood and Stenner at this time are well worth a moment's consideration. Stenner's face was grayish white, his lips blue. Cowperwood, despite various solemn thoughts concerning a possible period of incarceration, which this hue and cry now suggested, and what that meant to his parents, his wife and children, his business associates and his friends, was as calm and collected as one might assume his great mental resources would permit him to be. During all of this whirl of disaster, he had never once lost his head or his courage. That thing, conscience, which obsesses and rides some people to destruction, did not trouble him at all. He had no consciousness of what is currently known as sin. There were just two faces to the shield of life from the point of view of his peculiar mind, strength and weakness. Right and wrong, he did not know about those. Those were bound up in metaphysical abstrusities about which he did not care to bother. Good and evil, those were the toys of clerics by which they made money. And as for social favor or social ostracism, which on occasion so quickly followed upon the heels of disaster of any kind, well, what was social ostracism? Had either he or his parents been of the best society as yet? And since not, and despite this present mix-up, might not the future hold social restoration and position for him? It might. Morality and immorality? He never considered them. But strength and weakness? Oh, yes. If you had strength, you could protect yourself always and be something. If you were weak, pass quickly to the rear and get out of the range of the guns. He was strong, and he knew it, and somehow he always believed in his star. Something he could not say what, it was the only metaphysics he bothered about, was doing something for him. It had always helped him. It made things come out right at times. It put excellent opportunities in his way. Why had he been given so fine a mind? Why always favored financially, personally? He had not deserved it, earned it. Accident, perhaps. But somehow, the thought that he would always be protected, these intuitions, the hunches to act, which he frequently had, could not be so easily explained. Life was a dark, insoluble mystery, but whatever it was, strength and weakness were its two constituents. Strength would win, weakness lose. He must rely on swiftness of thought, accuracy, his judgment, and on nothing else. He was really a brilliant picture of courage and energy, moving about briskly in a jaunty, dapper way. His mustache curled, his clothes pressed, his nails manicured, his face clean-shaven and tinted with health. In the meantime, Cowperwood had gone personally to Skelton C. Wheat and tried to explain his side of the situation, alleging that he had done no differently from many others before him. But Wheat was dubious. He did not see how it was that $60,000 worth of certificates 
were not in the sinking fund. Cowperwood's explanation of custom did not avail. Nevertheless, Mr. Wheat saw that others in politics had been profiting quite as much as Cowperwood in other ways, and he advised Cowperwood to turn state's evidence. This, however, he promptly refused to do. He was no squealer, and indicated as much to Mr. Wheat, who only smiled wirely. Butler Sr. was delighted, concerned though he was, about party success at the polls. For now, he had this villain in the toils, and he would have a fine time getting out of this. The incoming district attorney to succeed David Petty, if the Republican Party won, would be, as was now planned, an appointee of Butler's, a young Irishman who had done considerable legal work for him, one Dennis Shannon. The other two party leaders had already promised Butler that. Shannon was a smart, athletic, good-looking fellow, all of five feet ten inches in height, sandy-haired, pink-cheeked, blue-eyed, considerable of an orator, and a fine legal fighter. He was very proud to be in the old man's favor, to be promised a place on the ticket by him, and would, he said, if elected, do his bidding to the best of his knowledge and ability. There was only one fly in the ointment, so far as some of the politicians were concerned, and that was that, if Cowperwood were convicted, Stenner must needs be also. There was no escape, in so far as anyone else could see, for the city treasurer. If Cowperwood was guilty of securing, by trickery, $60,000 worth of the city money, Stenner was guilty of securing $500,000. The prison term for this was five years. He might plead not guilty, and by submitting as evidence that what he did was due to custom save himself from the odious necessity of pleading guilty, but he would be convicted nevertheless. No jury could get by the fact in regard to him. In spite of public opinion, when it came to a trial, there might be considerable doubt in Cowperwood's case. There was none in Stenner's. The practical manner in which the situation was furthered after Cowperwood and Stenner were formally charged may be quickly noted. Steger, Cowperwood's lawyer, learned privately beforehand that Cowperwood was to be prosecuted. He arranged at once to have his client appear before any warrant could be served, and to forestall the newspaper palaver which would follow if he had to be searched for. The mayor issued a warrant for Cowperwood's arrest, and, in accordance with Steger's plan, Cowperwood immediately appeared before Brochard, in company with his lawyer, and gave bail in $20,000. W.C. Davison, president of the Girard National Bank, being his surety. For his appearance at the Central Police Station on the following Saturday for a hearing. Marcus Oldslaw, a lawyer, had been employed by Strobik as president of the Common Council to represent him in prosecuting the case for the city. The mayor looked at Cowperwood curiously, for he, being comparatively new to the political world of Philadelphia, was not so familiar with him as others were. And Cowperwood returned the look pleasantly enough. 
This is a great dumb show, Mr. Mayor, he observed once to Brochard, quietly, and the latter replied with a smile and a kindly eye that as far as he was concerned, it was a form of procedure which was absolutely unavoidable at this time. You know how it is, Mr. Cowperwood, he observed. The latter smiled. I do indeed, he said. Later there followed several more or less perfunctory appearances in a local police court, known as the Central Court, where, when arraigned, he pleaded not guilty, and finally his appearance before the November grand jury, where, owing to the complicated nature of the charge drawn up against him by Petty, he thought it was wise to appear. He was properly indicted by the latter body, Shannon, the newly elected district attorney, making a demonstration in force, and his trial ordered for December 5th before a certain Judge Paterson in Part 1 of Quarter Sessions, which was the local branch of the state courts dealing with crimes of this character. His indictment did not occur, however, before the coming and going of the much-mooted fall election, which resulted, thanks to the clever political manipulations of Mullenhauer and Simpson, ballot-box stuffing, and personal violence at the polls not barred, in another victory by, however, a greatly reduced majority. The Citizens' Municipal Reform Association, in spite of a resounding defeat at the polls, which could not have happened except by fraud, continued to fire courageously away at those whom it considered to be the chief malefactors. Eileen Butler, during all this time, was following the trend of Cowperwood's outward vicissitudes as heralded by the newspapers and the local gossip with as much interest and bias and enthusiasm for him as her powerful physical and affectional nature would permit. She was no great reasoner where affection entered in, but shrewd enough without it, and although she saw him often and he told her much, as much as his natural caution would permit, she yet gathered from the newspapers and private conversation at her own family's table and elsewhere that, as bad as they said he was, he was not as bad as he might be. One item only, clipped from the Philadelphia public ledger, soon after Cowperwood had been publicly accused of embezzlement, comforted and consoled her. She cut it out and carried it in her bosom, for somehow it seemed to show that her adored Frank was far more sinned against than sinning. It was part of one of those very numerous pronunciamentos, or reports issued by the Citizens' Municipal Reform Association, and it ran. The aspects of the case are graver than have yet been allowed to reach the public. $500,000 of the deficiency arises not from city bonds sold and not accounted for, but from loans made by the treasurer to his broker. The committee is also informed, on what it believes to be good authority, that the loans sold by the broker were accounted for in the monthly settlements at the lowest prices current during the month, and that the difference between this rate and that actually realized was divided between the treasurer and the broker, thus making it to the interest of both parties to bear the market at some time during the month, so as to obtain a low quotation for settlement. Nevertheless, 
the committee can only regard the prosecution instituted against the broker, Mr. Cowperwood, as an effort to divert public attention from more guilty parties, while those concerned may be able to fix matters to suit themselves. There, thought Eileen, when she read it, there you have it, these politicians, her father among them, as she gathered, after his conversation with her, were trying to put the blame of their own evil deeds on her Frank. He was not nearly as bad as he was painted. The report said so. She gloated over the words, an effort to divert public attention from more guilty parties. That was just what her Frank had been telling her in those happy private hours when they had been together recently in one place and another, particularly the new rendezvous in South Sixth Street, which he had established, since the old one had to be abandoned. He had stroked her rich hair, caressed her body, and told her it was all a prearranged political scheme to cast the blame as much as possible on him and make it as light as possible for Stenner and the party generally. He would come out of it all right, he said, but he cautioned her not to talk. He did not deny his long and profitable relations with Stenner. He told her exactly how it was. She understood, or thought she did. Anyhow, her Frank was telling her, and that was enough. As for the two Cowperwood households so recently and pretentiously joined in success, now so gloomily tied in failure, the life was going out of them. Frank Algernon was that life. He was the courage and the force of his father, the spirit and opportunity of his brothers, the hopes of his children, the estate of his wife, the dignity and significance of the Cowperwood name. All that meant opportunity, force, emolument, dignity, and happiness to those connected with him. He was. And his marvelous son was waning, apparently, to a black eclipse. Since the fatal morning, for instance, when Lillian Cowperwood had received that utterly destructive note, like a cannonball ripping through her domestic affairs, she had been walking like one in a trance. Each day now, for weeks, she had been going about her duties placidly enough to all outward seeming, but inwardly she was running with a troubled tide of thought. She was so utterly unhappy. Her fortieth year had come for her at a time when life ought naturally to stand fixed and firm on a solid base, and here she was, about to be torn bodily from the domestic soil in which she was growing and blooming, and thrown out indifferently to wither in the blistering noonday sun of circumstance. As for Cowperwood Sr., his situation at the bank and elsewhere was rapidly nearing a climax. As has been said, he had had tremendous faith in his son, but he could not help seeing that an error had been committed, as he thought, and that Frank was suffering greatly for it now. He considered, of course, that Frank had been entitled to try to save himself as he had, but he so regretted that his son should have put his foot into the trap of any situation which could stir up discussion of the sort that was now being aroused. Frank was wonderfully brilliant. He need never have taken up with the city treasurer or the politicians to have succeeded marvelously. Local street railways and speculative politicians 
were his undoing. The old man walked the floor all of the days, realizing that his sun was setting, that with Frank's failure he failed, and that this disgrace, these public charges, meant his own undoing. His hair had grown very gray in but a few weeks. His steps slow, his face pallid, his eyes sunken. His rather showy side whiskers seemed now like flags or ornaments of a better day that was gone. His only consolation through it all was that Frank had actually got out of his relationship with the Third National Bank without owing it a single dollar. Still, as he knew, the directors of that institution could not possibly tolerate the presence of a man whose son had helped loot the city treasury and whose name was now in the public prints in this connection. Besides, Cowperwood Sr. was too old. He ought to retire. The crisis for him, therefore, came on the day when Frank was arrested on the embezzlement charge. The old man, through Frank, who had it from Steger, knew it was coming, still had the courage to go to the bank, but it was like struggling under the weight of a heavy stone to do it. But before going, and after a sleepless night, he wrote his resignation to Freewin Kaysen, the chairman of the board of directors, in order that he should be prepared to hand it to him at once. Kaysen, a stocky, well-built, magnetic man of fifty, breathed an inward sigh of relief at the sight of it. "'I know it's hard, Mr. Cowperwood,' he said sympathetically. "'We, and I can speak for the other members of the board, "'we feel keenly the unfortunate nature of your position. "'We know exactly how it is that your son "'has become involved in this matter. "'He is not the only banker who has been involved "'in the city's affairs, by no means. "'It is an old system. "'We appreciate all of us keenly "'the service you have rendered this institution,' during the past thirty-five years. If there were any possible way in which we could help to tide you over the difficulties at this time, we would be glad to do so. But as a banker yourself, you must realize just how impossible that would be. Everything is in a turmoil. If things were settled, if we knew how soon this would blow over... He paused, for he felt that he could not go on and say that he or the bank was sorry to be forced to lose Mr. Cowperwood in this way at present. Mr. Cowperwood himself would have to speak. During all this, Cowperwood Sr. had been doing his best to pull himself together in order to be able to speak at all. He had gotten out a large white linen handkerchief and blown his nose, and had straightened himself in his chair and laid his hands rather peacefully on his desk. Still, he was intensely wrought up. I can't stand this, he suddenly exclaimed. I wish you would leave me alone now. Kaysen, very carefully dressed and manicured, arose and walked out of the room for a few moments. He appreciated keenly the intensity of the strain he had just witnessed. The moment the door was closed, Cowperwood put his head in his hands and shook convulsively. I never thought I'd come to this, he muttered. I never thought it. Then he wiped away his salty, hot tears and went to the window to look out and to think of what else to do from now on. End of chapter 34